thoughts when you start to notice them begin. One time in a retreat center which had a very noisy heating system, I kept trying to push away the heating system and just be blissed out of my breath. Failed all the time, failed miserably. Finally, I just said, whatever. And I started paying attention to the sound of the air conditioning. Right? It was a stimulus. Okay, it's a stimulus like any other stimulus. I mean, there's certain benefits to the breath, but fundamentally, what we're doing is learning how to pay steady, to steady the mind with regard to anything. So that's another thing to think about. If there's pain, make pain the object of attention. If there's an emotion like sadness or anxiety, that can become the object of attention. Okay? Okay, good. So any quick questions so far on this? Please. You want the mic? Anybody have the mic? Mike, see him? So in that, method, in that method of batting away, uh, does the breath then sort of recede in the background and make the uh, intrusive thoughts or stimulus, both the intrusive thoughts or stimulus the attention? Does the breath then sort of go to the back background for a while? Or? Yeah, did you hear yeah. his question? Uh, I'll repeat it, thank you. Um, so in the batting away method, does the, uh, or when you're absorbing or you know, staying with an intrusive stimulus, does the breath move to the background? And for one, all these are to be explored on your own to the extent you want to and you'll see. Um, second, I want to make a distinction. The batting away method most it's like it's a, about as much attention bats away this, the incoming stimulus as maybe is involved in counting or noting, you know, rising, falling, um, in, out. It's only a small part of you that kind of just knocks it away before the thought really has a chance to really, really congeal. Okay, uh, okay that's that's different from, in a way, giving up. And, and allowing a new object, like the pain in your knee for the air conditioner banging, to become the object of attention. So I want to make sure those are really clear. In the first case, when you're batting away, the breath or whatever is remaining your fundamental object of attention. And I think of this batting away method as a preliminary intermediate step, because what happens after a while, I think most of you, if not all of us, have noticed this, you become, at some point, there's a tipping point, and you become absorbed in the object of attention, and you start sliding down. And it actually becomes hard when the meditation's over to get up and walk you know, somewhere else. You have to kind of really move against the tendency. On the other hand, uh, when you are um, shifting to a new object, you're just kind of giving up, and you're, you're riding the horse you got, right? The air conditioner is the horse you got. The pain in your back is the horse you got. So that's the horse you're going to ride. You know, then that becomes a new object of attention. Okay. Uh, a, a lot of this was taught to me in terms of the ideas of managing pain. And most of the time when somebody's taking up a, a, a seat in, in meditation, pain will arise in the body somewhere. And initially you can say, okay, pain, I'm going to pay, pay attention to my knee. And then if you use it as the focus of the attention, the pain, which was this solitary, rock-hard object that was calling your attention and going, come here, come here, come here, come here. That pain fragments into different kinds of qualities as you focus on it. 
and all of a sudden it's got a burning, it's got a hot, it's got a jangle, it's got a time course, it waxes, it wanes. And you just pay attention to that. And the same, with the same kind of very focused, you know, without doing anything about it. Um, you know, for example, in um, John Kabat-Zinn and a number of other people have written on use, the, the meditations about pain. Uh, it's a very effective technique to break pain up into all these little different fragmentary components. And all of a sudden, fra- pain has no inherent reality. It's just all that stuff. And so it becomes the same, path, the same doorway into insight about the composite, compacted, conditioned nature of our experience as looking at the breath is. So there's, there's, the, there's the technique in coming at something that, that hits you at a 9 out of 10 level, as we were talking about a minute ago, that, takes you, that can take you right into the real central core experience of meditation, which is to see the reality as it is. Okay. Thanks. Now, how to manage hunger for new stimulation? Well, the brain's got an, an innate hunger craving for stimulation. This is one of the things that kept our ancient ancestors vigilant and alive on the African savanna. Uh, it may be one of the reasons we were talking at lunch about the fact that you know, 70,000 years ago, the entire population of Homo sapiens was reduced to 40,000 people by the eruption of a volcano in Indonesia that basically changed the climate for five years and dried out most of Africa. A lot of, home, uh, a lot of uh, primate species disappeared, including a lot of our uh, ancestors on the evolutionary tree. Um, and so this innate hunger for stimulation is one of the things that takes you out. So where does that start? What's some, some of the anatomy to understand that? There's a part of our brain that sits at the junction of the cerebral cortex and that reptilian brain that we showed you, you know, the sort of triune brain pattern. Uh, that we inherited from our dinosaur ancestors. And this, this area is called the basal ganglia. And it's basically a collection of neurons that sit in the center of each hemisphere. Uh, and it's about the size of your, the first joint of your index finger, or little finger. And it's involved in motor control, and it's also involved in registering the flow of stimulation coming in through all of the six sense doors, including the mind. So when that flow of information begins to diminish below certain thresholds, the basal ganglia start to rev up. Hey, what's going on? Go look for something. Where's happening? And it starts to send out signals to the rest of the organism to start seeking more stimulation, start to explore the world, start to reach out. As long as that electrical activity in the basal ganglia is above a certain threshold, the basal ganglia doesn't trigger this activity and restlessness. One of the mechanisms of the action of Ritalin in people with attention deficit disorder is to stimulate those basal ganglia reward centers with dopamine and thus trick, trick them into sending this mission accomplished, everything's fine, you've got enough, you're enough stimulation to be satiated, you know, chill out for a while. This settles them down, they can focus on less stimulating matters such as that Three, three pages of long division problems that they assigned you in fourth grade that you had to get done by tomorrow morning and you don't want to do them after the second problem. In terms of how to manage that from the standpoint of you know, handling our own stuff, you have to be honest about your own temperament. If you look at your, per, at your personal brain resting state, does it require more stimulation than the average person? You know, or what, is your, what is your inherited genetic karma chemistry? And how does that set your personality up for success or failure in the meditation session that you're initiating? 
And this typically is, is something you really have to focus on if your temperament is more along the lines of an, uh, a spirited child kind of temperament or an ADD, ADHD kind of thing. So the Buddha himself recommended a lot of different practices for even the most senior, most realized followers. Sent Ananda out on a lot of tasks. Uh, whatever skillful means. So number of ways to manage this. Let's see if I can do this without... No. I'm scared of it now. <laughs> yes. Um, be satisfied with less. The brain's got a lot of receptors that detect stimulation. When they're triggered, they release dopamine, which brings that both that sense of subjective pleasure into, into many parts of the brain and s- send signals throughout the brain that the organism can turn, out, t- turn down this quest. So there's a big recursive feedback loop, as we were talking about this morning. So if you increase your sensitivity to stimulation, that makes your brain more content with less in the environment, which has advantages while meditating or on retreat. That's one of the reasons that people going on retreat have such an entry problem, because we come out of, you know, an over-dopaminized, over-sympathetic nervous system, fight-or-flight kind of culture, and you come crashing into silence, and it takes you two days to sit down. Most of us who've been on retreats have had that kind of experience. So you can increase your sensitivity to stimulation through sensory awareness practices like everyday mindfulness meditation. This is why, as Rick was saying, telling yourself to meditate just one minute a day done week after week after week pretty soon becomes two minutes, becomes four minutes, becomes eight minutes, becomes 16, becomes 32, becomes 64 because becomes you're not getting to work the next day because you're still on the cushion. Yeah, One hopes. It's a good problem. It's a good problem to have. And one of the other things is that you can focus on the, the, the here is you can focus on the neutral feeling tone. Um, training your brain to really turn up the gain on the receptors to just kind of pay attention to the relatively unstimulating experience. Set the intention to not pay so much attention to the pleasure piece of what is happening in your brain right now. Not paying so much attention to the pain piece. But let's look at the boring stuff. What's with that? And just kind of get interested in what is it about this neutral stuff? And you'll feel gentle senses of pleasure. You'll feel gentle senses of pain. You may feel even further sort of gentle senses of neutral. But explore that. And what you will find is that you turn up the gain. In, uh, in neurology, when I'm talking to somebody about being dizzy, uh, and where they have vertigo from an inner ear problem, uh, I set them out on a series of exercises that involves making themselves dizzy. As a, as a part of the way to treat the issue. When, if you are really vertiginous and a certain movement causes you to become dizzy and nauseous, you don't do that movement. And if that movement is a critical part of turning to look over your shoulder to drive or walking down the street or rolling over in bed to get up in the morning, you stop doing that and pretty soon you're a vestibular cripple. The way to do that is not to stop the movement, but to go for it. Fatigue the system. If this makes me dizzy, turning my head one to two degrees to the left or right, the secret is not to go zero, because I'm an alive human being, and zero is not, con- is not con- conducive to staying alive. The, the, the secret is to do 40, real fast, back and forth. Fatigue the system, and then that one to, one to two degrees that I need to live fades out in the noise. The nervous system turns up and turns down the gain as a natural process 
in, in just trying to detect things. Work with that. By paying attention to the neutral, you become more satiated with stimuli and stop seeking novelty. Next slide. So, actually, let's, just, let's do that. Right now, I want you to take three breaths, real quiet. Kind of close your eyes. And for those three breaths, I want you to pay attention to the neutral aspects of this. Just the neutral. Not the pleasant, not the painful, just the neutral. So, breath one. Two. Okay, so that's just a little flavor of what it is like to try to pay attention to the neutral and see if you can work with that, you know, in your own meditation sessions. Increasing stimulation with contact. This actually... It's a way of become, as I was talking a little bit about in terms of discussing the pain, the question that you asked. Increasing the stimulus intensity by but with contact with that stimulus. Okay, suppose reorient to each breath as a fresh stimulus. Approach this as a don't know mind, a beginner's mind. Intensify the, con the contact. Really get focused on all the intimate details, all the tiny hair movements in the nostrils and the movements in the back of the throat and just get as particular as you possibly can with this breath. Inhaling, exhaling, inhaling, exhaling. That's a way of just increasing the data, the data dump out of the sensory system into your brain and satiating you and allowing you to continue to maintain focus and contact. Again, this is, this is something to do in a, in a light way. This is not something to do you know, with that, that overseer cracking a whip, but this is a 5 to 10% intensity kind of thing. Just say, okay, for the next breath, I'm really going to get focused on the hair follicles in my left nostril. That's what I want to. That's what I want to know. I want to know how each one twitches. And and, and just and just go with. We're that. all in our nose now. <laughs> <laughs> leading, leading you around by, as they say. Um, so then, then the other thing, in terms of, of going into the the intensivist, shift your attention around a bit in the stimulus. There's as you as you as soon as you start to explore it, you realize that any one of these simple things like inhale has an incredible complexity to it. There's all kinds of stuff going on. So shift your attention around a bit, especially if you start to zone out, say from the initial point of contact to where the breath is landing in your belly button uh, or how it's breathing into your heart center and your chest, how your ribs are feeling, how the toes are breathing, how the fingertips are breathing, or perhaps even going into attend to the breath as a whole. So basically... You know, and this is all, all in a sense focused on uh, sitting meditation on the zafu. And then, similar to what Rick was talking about with an intrusive stimulus with the air conditioner, suppose that's failing. You're 10 minutes in and your mind can't concentrate on the breath to save your soul, if there is one. Uh, walk or stand. 
do something where there, there's, there's more somatosensory input. Do a walking meditation. I mean, walking meditation. You know, there are four different meditation postures that are listed in, in, the, in, the, in the Buddhist uh, literature. There's lying down. There's sitting. There's standing. And there's walking. Pick one that works for the moment. You know, there, there's, there's, no, there's no joy in being macho successful at 30 minutes on the Zafu if what's needed for your organism at that moment in time is 30 minutes of walking meditation. That's unskillful means. Do what appears to be necessary for your being at that time to move down the path. Um, yeah. We're just going to do this part quickly because we talked a lot earlier about positive emotion. Right. Positive feeling is stimulating. Okay, so All right. Talk a little bit about the, the dopamine and the, the way that it stimulates the basal ganglia and the thalamus with positive, positive senses. You can do that just in the same way we talked about intention, by evoking feelings of contentment or fullness or sufficiency. I'm doing all right. This is cool. And in saying, I'm, act- I'm actually doing well, and jazzing that up a little bit in your mind, you'll bring dopamine on board from your own organism, and that will, will essentially warm up your meditation and make it more pleasurable. Third thing, the third line on the slide, activate oxytocin. Give yourself a mental hug. I mean, hugging and physical contact and that whole piece uh, about oxytocin and, bind, and the binding behavior of, of mutual hugging, um, you can do that to yourself. You know, and that, that makes that solitary meditation on the mountain, five, you know, in a cave 5,000 miles from civilization, a lot easier. Um, and then finally, if, you, if, you're, if you're lucky and a lot of the noise is quieted down, savor that pleasant sensation of absorption itself. And then disenchantment. Lastly, you can always remind yourself that just as you've experienced in your life up till now, everything that is pleasant has gone away. Everything that's unpleasant has come and gone. And basically, all the stimuli are impermanent, they're empty, and they're unsatisfying. It's not worth chasing it. It's not worth resisting it. It's going to come and go of its own of its, of its own pace. So, use that to call up this sense of disenchantment with the inner and outer worlds. That's a very important step along, along the path to awakening. That's sort of, you know, it's not that you stop experiencing things. They cease to have magic. They cease to have control. You're no longer, wow, engrossed in the pleasant, or, you know, evoked, evoked by the unpleasant. That, and that is a, criti- a, a critical thing in terms of reaching on beyond our normal uh, you know, contracted and fearful states into the Brahma-Vihara states, of, you know, particularly of equanimity, uh, metta and mudita. Um, so, we've given you a lot of techniques, a lot of thoughts. They're there on the handout if you need to cheat. So what we're going to do is for the next five minutes... We want you to pay attention to every single part of every breath. As best you can. As best you can. We're throwing down a marker here. Five minutes only. So, if you lose focus, just start again. But, take up your seat.
If you need to stand, stand. If you need to sit, sit. Come into your body as you need to be now. Bring your attention to your breath. Apply your attention to your breath. Sustain your attention to your breath.
Okay. We're going to take about a ten minute break now. What I'd like you to do is sort of carry through what you learned in that five minutes, whether it was an eye blink or an eternity. And watch what happens during the break. Bring that same kind of attention to what will happen as you stand up and walk around. And we'll be back in ten minutes. (laughs) Can you clarify the difference between intention and goals, which we are encouraged to stay away from? question was uh, distinction between intention and goals. In this case, I'm not distinguishing. We're not distinguishing between Mm -hmm. them. Uh, In a sense, an intention is a kind of directedness toward a goal. But, you know, in a sense, the goal is often built into the intention. Okay. And then maybe one more person and then we'll move on to the next one. Two more persons. First you, then her, then we better move on. Yeah. Yes, I think so. Is there any way to make those four things more concrete so that one will remember them? Um, I don't know how to make them more concrete than we did. I, well, I mean during meditation. Like to hold on to them. Oh, I see. That's a wonderful idea. And... We could take time. I I don't know. For me, I think feeling it, you know, you. It's like, well, I'll do it right now. Think of it as a you're walking through a garden. Okay, I'm just doing it right now. I can't believe this, but anyway. So first is you want to get a picture of the garden you want to go in. That's your meditation. What's the state of being? All right. And then before you wander down that path, you've got to decide I want to go down the path. So you decide to go down the path. For me. And then you can find your own way. I'm just creating one on the spot. And then who's going with you? The Buddha's going with you. The Dalai Lama's going with you. Your favorite teacher's going with you. Your best self is going with you. That's, you know, channeling, if you will, a teacher, a teacher, mentor, guru. And then as you go down that path, in each little zig and zag, inhale, exhale, right? Inhale, exhale. You re-intend to be present each step of the way. That would, that's all. But find your own way. That's a wonderful question. Kind of style yeah. yeah. That's right. That's great. If you, want, if you wanted a mantra for it, it would be evoke, attend, channel, repeat. Evoke, intend, channel, repeat. Yeah, right down there. But that's great. But I think what you're getting at, Rick and I, by the way, we were talking with Carolyn about the wonderfulness of the attentiveness. And we were talking about the combination of modesty and depth in this group and it's the idea to find what's skillful for you I mean right out there is a free book Wings to Awakening a wonderful book and Tom Jeff really talks about the fundamental idea of skillfulness as at the heart of the practice and finding the forms of skillfulness that really produce results for you and that will vary from person to person mm-hmm. okay one more and then we'll move on yeah. I think you answered my question I was just going to ask for clarification or a repeat of what you meant by channeling a teacher mentor guru 
Oh, I just meant it in a sense of modeling. I actually took it from rock climbing. I remember one day I was watching this really great climber, and I just imagined my, mo my body moving like his was, and then I went back and climbed, and I climbed so much better. It's a little bit like that. When I imagine sitting like, um, you know, teachers I know, suddenly I sit up straighter, I'm more settled, I'm calmer. There is a way that we do pick up other people. Maybe in a subtle energy, energy way, but also in more material ways. We, mm -hmm. we sense their state of mind. And uh, by their state of mind awakens harmonically a kind of similar state of mind in ourselves. So why not use this deliberately? That's all. There's some, there's some neat data, for example, that's a parallel to this. Um, and if, you, if you look at people practicing piano, you get a bunch of people who are playing a piece and their cortex thickens and the, and the amount of cortex that's involved in playing that piece of, on the piano expands. And then you get people who are not practicing with their fingers, but they're sitting there with their hands in their pockets imagining playing the piece. And there is the same spread of activation in the cortex. This is literally, you know, the Eastern Europeans, for example, you know, in the last 20, uh, in the 80s and 90s, used this whole imagination technique, which is essentially channeling to improve the performance of their gymnastics teams. And this, that's now generalized and taken into the United States. There are a whole lot of people who are working on sports stuff who spend a good deal of time with their hands in their pockets imagining you know, hitting a three-point shot from halfway across the court. All right, so great. So, so the I'm same there. as visualization, I guess. I've heard the term visualization yeah. before. Well, same also, thing. though, you're, it's, it's emotional. It's emotional. You're, you're matching the state of being of the other person. You're imagining in some sense mm -hmm. your own mind stream or your own emotional bodily state even being kind of similar to their own. And, and your motivations. Okay, so moving on. Now we want to talk about attention fatigue. Come on. There we go. Okay, so I'm going to go through a few methods here fairly briskly. Um, Let's see, one is to enlist the language centers for more neurological resources. You're probably pretty familiar with the standard meditative aids of either counting the breaths, down from 10 or up to 10, and then starting over on each cycle. If you lose track, you start over. All right, there's a book that got written in the 70s, I think, called Back to One, <laughs> which is so much of life, isn't it? Starting over, Philip Moffat talks a lot about that. Back to one, starting over, all right? Or the practice um, that Mahasi Saidao in particular in Southeast Asia uh, made popular, which is soft noting. Little important point, these practices are to be done in the back of the mind. I think of it in terms of five, 10 you know, percent of attention should be directed at them, but uh, most of attention is directed at the object. They just kind of keep us present, all right? Okay, good. Another... Um, Actually, a little goal, if you want, when you start sitting, is to try to get to 10 breaths in a row. And then, if you really want to go for it, try 10 tens. Then you're pretty stable. If you get 10, 10 tens, 100 breaths in a row, that's uh, about, depending on how slowly you breathe, about six, seven minutes. You can make your fingers, you know, start with the closed hands if you want, and then if you get the first 10, put your first finger out, then the next 10, your next finger out. If you've gotten 10 tens, you'll notice your mind is very quiet. And it's a good thing to go for. And suddenly, there you are, eight minutes after you started. Okay. So think of that's something to try. Okay. Uh, another method is to set up a little overseer. 
I actually visualized this friendly little person, a little bit like a bureaucrat, but who's benign, a benign bureaucrat in my mind, who's observing how well I'm staying with each breath. It's a little guardian. This Haldol titer's running low. Yeah, that's right. I need, <laughs> I need more. Okay. But whatever, what, what, did you see, what you said exactly, learning styles, different things work for different people. If you look at the really cool meditation teachers, there's a playfulness about them. They're just trying different things. They're not too constrained. You know, the bottom line is what, you know, ultimately um, opens the heart and, you know, change, transforms the emotions of the person. So this... Um, overseer is most likely in the cingulate cortex. It's kind of sitting there and it's watching how well you watch. Got it? It's the watcher that's watching how well you watch your breath. And it's noting breath by breath how well that's going. Okay? And then one more thing is to bring a sense of emotional warmth or warmth or fondness to the object of meditation. Could be the breath. Um, I've heard the phrase used, devoted to the breath, a sense of friendliness toward it, or a kind of friendliness toward receiving whatever is streaming through awareness without, getting, uh, str- without struggling with it in any way, without either fighting it or grasping after it. There's a kind of friendliness there. And that warmth goes to what I riffed on earlier, which comes here in the script, but I did it earlier, so I'll just uh, remind you of it, the way in which positive emotion helps stabilize attention. Okay? So even literally a sense of warmth or fondness for the breath or gladness of the heart, that's a phrase the Buddha used, gladness of the heart, or a sense of gratitude at being able to practice or be exposed to the stream of wisdom, how fortunate we are, or that you just are, have reaped the rewards or the benefits of your previous selves. I don't mean in previous lives. I mean, yourself a year ago did lots of good things that let you be here today reaping those benefits, right? Anyway, a sense of gratitude for all that can enable us to um, you know, uh, manage our, our tendency to fatigue because on, on attention. Okay? So any quick questions on this part so far? Good. Filtering out distractions. Okay, next one. This, I think that's the next one. Oh yeah, I did this on barbarians at attention's gate. That's Rick's phrase. It's a great phrase. Filtering out distractions. So now there are many different ways, and I want to go through them. So <coughs> one is, in a funny kind of way, is to initially pay attention to all the distracting stimuli. Like if you're on retreat or in a meditation, deliberately pay attention initially, say, to sounds or kind of scan your own interior world. The trick, of course, is to not do so much of that that you get sucked into it. But to just kind of notice that, like, okay, that's the refrigerator sound. Or those are the people rustling about in the morning getting up and ready, getting ready for school. Or, you know, that's uh, my worry about the IRS audit or something, right? Okay, that's what that is. It is what it is. I don't need now to pay any more attention to it. It's a sense of acknowledging the stimulus and then satiating on it and then moving on. Okay? Um, You can think to yourself softly, I don't care about that. Well, actually, I'll get to that in a sense. Now, the next one is to deliberately set, you could say, high filtering, where you say to yourself, I'm not going to care about 
for these 20 minutes, I'm not going to care about the bills. I'm not going to care about that awkwardness with our teenager. I'm just not going to think about that right now. And I just don't care about it. I don't care. Uh, I give up. For the next 20 minutes, I give up about the audit, my teenager, the leaky roof. I give up. I don't on, know. On a, one to, on a one to ten scale of you know, zero to absolute, you know, the house is burning down intensity, I'm going to set the threshold at nine. That's right. Short of the smelling smoke. Short, short, of, short, of, short of nine later. Yeah, 20 minutes from now or one minute from now. You know, uh, one thing you might do if you haven't done this is to make a moral commitment to meditating one minute or more every day. And define meditation in a kind of a formal way. It's not just lying down and spacing out or listening to Stephen Halpern music. Uh, all of which are good. All of which are good. But I'm not sure how much they train the mind. Right? So I was going to have about, eight hours of meditation. Think about